0: All right. Well, we are going to make our way to First Corinthians chapter eight. So, if you guys brought your Bibles with you, if you're a child of technology, feel free to grab your idle phone or your Satan song, and make your way to First Corinthians chapter eight. And we are going to find ourselves in this spot, right smack dab in the middle of Paul's first letter to the church there at Corinth. As you guys find your way that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And so as Paul's planted the church there in Corinth and then he's gone about his missionary journeys and planting other churches, he has now received letters about how things are going or actually how poorly things are going in Corinth. And he received multiple letters from people and actually the first six chapters what we saw is Paul addressing issues that were raised by a friend of his, a lady named Chloe. He had baptized the people in her house and she had seen all kinds of flaws taking place in the church in Corinth, and the most major of which, the one that Paul addressed first, was one of divisiveness, that there had become cliques and factions and people had become divided in a spot where they should have been united together through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul first addresses the divisiveness that had happened inside the church. He then proceeds to address the immorality that was taking place, the things that were happening in the church, and the church just simply turned a blind eye. They knew what was taking place. They knew the sin that was there in the camp, but they just turned away from it. And so for six chapters, Paul addressed the issues that were raised by Chloe on what was taking place inside the church in Corinth. Now finally, when we arrived at chapter 7 last week, we see Paul then addressing the issues that were brought to him by the leaders of the church. They've got All kinds of questions for Paul and how church should look. These are questions on how things should operate, what their Christian lives should look like, and they wanted some direction from Paul. And so in chapter 7, we looked at the issues of marriage and divorce and slavery, all light topics that we looked at last week. We then transitioned from there, looking at Christian liberties over these next several chapters, beginning in chapter 8. And in particular, what we're going to look at this morning is this idea of meat being sacrificed to idols. Now, normally this wouldn't be a spot that, uh, as a pastor, I would be super excited to get to share with you about. But i got to tell you, after three straight weeks of dealing with uh, sexual immorality and divorce and slavery, I'm really excited about meat sacrificed to idols. Like it's, This is looking up so far. Now, <clears throat> the issue at hand was one that really uh, we need to understand the culture that was taking place there in Corinth. When you think about uh, ancient Greece and Rome, there were gods, little g gods, uh, all over the place. And there were temples to all of these little g gods scattered throughout Corinth. And so if, say, you're struggling uh, with your love life, you would take a sacrifice to the little g goddess of Aphrodite, and you would take the sacrifice there to the temple priest, and he would offer up, a portion of the sacrifice to Aphrodite. You would then go home and you would take a portion of the sacrifice as well and you would consume that animal as well as the little g-god consuming it. And the idea is you would become one with that god or goddess. Now, there was a third portion of the meat that would be given to the priest. This would essentially be their payment for making the sacrifice on your behalf. So the priest would receive a portion of the meat that they would use themselves. But you can imagine throughout the week they would receive all kinds of sacrifices from people and there would be more meat than they could possibly eat themselves. So what the priest would do is they would take the leftover meat and they were looking for a little cash money. They would go on down to the butcher shop and they would sell at a discounted rate this meat that had previously been sacrificed to an idol. And now the butcher would put the meat out there and hang it up, and anyone that wanted to come by and buy the meat at a discount would be able to purchase it there. This was essentially the Aldi's meat market of the ancient world, right? And who doesn't love a value at Aldi's, right? I know that you guys love that. I see your cars there. I understand our Midwestern mindset is we love a good deal. We'll sacrifice quality for quantity any day, right? There's a reason we go to the Golden Corral. It's the best buffet in the USA. Now, none of it's that great, but there's a lot of it. And we can just keep eating it. And so we're excited about it. And the same thing is true for the church there in Corinth. There were many members of the church who were like, look, uh, I'm not stumbled by meat sacrificed to an idol. What I love is a good, cheap T-bone. I can't wait to go fry up, grill up a good, cheap ribeye. And so I'm not thinking about uh, anything doing with an idol. I'm worried about how can I get some good value Aldi meat. Now, the question that's been brought up from the church in Corinth is, is this right? should we be purchasing meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Should we be passing it on by? There were those in the church that were upset by this. And so they're bringing this to the Apostle Paul to address, in particular, uh, meat sacrificed to idols, which is why I came up with what such a catchy title for the message, what's the meeting of this? There you go. For those of you that didn't like my REO Speedwagon reference a couple weeks ago, hopefully that pacifies you. Now, Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so as Paul begins this 8th chapter, he starts off with what I would term a little bit of sanctified sarcasm. Because for the Corinthians, they loved Knowledge. They like the pursuit of knowledge, all things educational related. And so what Paul starts off with is, oh, I know that you're so smart. I mean, you guys are so knowledgeable, you Corinthians. But here's the thing. Uh, Knowledge has just made you puffed up. It's made you proud. But love, on the contrary, edifies, it builds up. So where knowledge falls short, it's not that knowledge is bad, but when we only pursue knowledge, what we know is after a while we can begin to look our nose down upon others that aren't as smart as us, that don't have the knowledge or the understanding that we have. And so Paul warns them of this issue not to be puffed up. It's not to say not to gain knowledge, but it's don't do it if you're not going to lace it with love. Now, The boys for their school curriculum are reading right now uh, biographies about all kinds of missionaries that were sent out, called by God to go overseas. And the one that they're reading right now is a lady named uh, Gladys Allward. And for Gladys Allward in the early 1900s, she was called to China to bring the gospel to a, a community there in China. And after uh, a long struggle to finally get to China, having to make her way down through Russia and all kinds of things that had taken place, she finally arrives in this community and she meets up with Mrs. Lawson, another uh, Chinese missionary that's there. And what they decide to do is they decide to set up a a motel that would essentially cater to people passing through. And as people would come in passing through, they would invite them into the motel and then they would share stories stories with them. They didn't have the Wi-Fi's in the motel or the free HBO. And so this was entertainment for people to be able to listen to stories that were shared there in the motel. And you can imagine the stories they shared. They were Bible stories. And so for Gladys and Mrs. Lawson, they would share these Bible stories with these Chinese travelers. And this was a way that they would evangelize the Chinese people. It worked out so well. Now, what also was taking place is there was a particular young Chinese man that had come to know Christ, led to the Lord by Mrs. Lawson. And he was so excited about his faith, and he also loved to tell stories. I mean, the Chinese people, they're storytellers. They love to hear stories and tell them. And so Gladys said that one day she came back into the motel, and there were the guests sitting listening to Yang share a story. And as he shared, he said, And the rain came down for 40 days and 40 nights, and then Jesus looked out from the ark and he spotted the star of Bethlehem. And she went into Mrs. Lawson and she said, I I don't know if I completely understand Yang's dialect, but I'm I'm pretty sure he was just sharing a Bible story about Jesus being on the ark. I'm a little concerned. And she nodded her head and she said, You you probably heard correctly. Um just last week he shared with a whole group of people about the Apostle Paul parting the Red Sea. So But she said, Well, we've got to do something about him sharing these stories. But Mrs. Lawson said, You have to understand, he is so excited about his faith. He is so on fire for Jesus. Don't get in the way of that. The facts might be a little fuzzy, the stories might not be all exactly accurate, but we don't want to stop the fire of him being excited to share about Jesus. And so I share that story with you because. What First Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says is true, that love covers a multitude of sins. That we get ourselves so pinned up, we don't want to go share because I don't have all the knowledge. But knowledge isn't what we need. What we need is love. We need a love for what Jesus has done for us and then take that opportunity to share with people. We get in our own way. We have paralysis by analysis. and So we need to be encouraged in that. Verse 2, Paul continues... If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And so, this phrase that Paul's used three times in these verses is to, to know God and to be known by him. Now, when you go through your Old Testament, you'll see that this phrase, to be known, has a different connotation than we might think. It actually speaks of physical intimacy. When Adam knew Eve, she then begot children. And so the idea, while it might creep us out in the flesh, think about this spiritually that that God wants to know us at the most intimate of levels. He wants to have a relationship with us, one where we spend time together. A closeness is what is desired. And so we're called to know God in that way and to be known by him. But the problem with Uh, knowledge is and head knowledge is, I, I can begin to depend upon my own head knowledge. I can begin to depend on me figuring things out for myself and then I develop my own source of wisdom and I don't need God speaking into my life any longer. As God spoke through the pen of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, 23, excuse me, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You see, knowing about Him isn't enough. He wants to know us. Intimately, personally, he wants a relationship with us. As Jesus was sharing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, this is what he said, speaking of those who work in his name but don't know him personally. He says in verse 21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, going and working for the Lord is not the same as having a relationship with Him. And it doesn't mean that we're not to study the Word and spend time in His Word. In fact, I would encourage you to do that as often as you can daily. Spend time digging in, but make sure as you do, you're looking through it from the lens of love. This is not a reference manual. This is not a spot for us to go when I have problems only. This is a love letter. This is Him communicating His love to us on every page. And as you do that, as you pick up your Scripture and read it from that lens, it will change everything. And the next piece is how can I know someone or be in a relationship with them if I don't talk to them? If I don't communicate with them, how am I going to be in a relationship? And what Jesus wants us to do is just talk to Him. It doesn't have to be a formal King James old school prayer, just a dialogue with Him. Lord, this is the spot I'm in. And if you're not sure where to begin, let me recommend this. Begin with thankfulness. (laughs) Go to Him first and just say, Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for laying down your life for me. And here's what will happen. When you go to him with thankfulness, it will drive out arrogance. Because thankfulness and arrogance cannot coexist. The two are mutually exclusive from one another. And so as I approach him with thankfulness, it will drive the pride right out of me. I am admitting when I thank him that it is not all about me, that it is not how hard I can work or what I can do, but it's what He has done for me. Now, back to the text, verse 4 as we continue. Therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And so Paul says in these verses, you're concerned about meat sacrificed to idols. The reality is the idols are nothing. They mean absolutely nothing. There's nothing there Behind it, it's all vanity, it's all vapor. In fact, what Isaiah would say concerning idols in Isaiah chapter 44, again, the Lord speaking through his pen, he says, Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses, they neither see nor know, that they may be ashamed. So the idols are nothing. They're a chunk of wood. They're a block of, of, of a sculpture or a piece of metal. In fact, Isaiah goes on to say in this chapter that you plant the seed for the tree, the tree grows up, you chop it down, you whittle a little image out of it, and then you take the rest of the wood and you throw it into the fire to cook yourself dinner. I mean, what kind of a God is that? Or you have to carry him around in your wallet or in your pocketbook. I mean, that doesn't seem like a God that is worthy for you to serve. And so there is nothing there. But in fact, what Paul would say to the Colossians at the end of Colossians 3.11 is Christ is all and is in all. It is all about him. He is in the midst of everything and in every situation. So Paul continues in verse 7 by saying, However, Thank you, Paul. You just said that idols are nothing, that there's nothing behind it, and then you throw in a however. I mean, wait a minute. You said this was okay. I can go to the Aldi meat market and buy a steak, and now you're going to lob in there a however statement. He's going to then share with them that our concern needs to be less about us and more about one another, more about a brother or a sister in Christ. He continues in verse 7, There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so the danger zone is for those who have a weaker conscience. They see you eating in this manner, eating this meat, and then they will partake, but it actually sears their consciousness. And this is a major issue. Or there are those among you that will turn their nose up at people eating meat sacrificed to an idol, and they proclaim to be more righteous than you because you eat the meat. And what Paul is saying is it's actually the opposite. They're looking down their nose at you and what you're doing, but the reality is they are of a weaker conscience. Their righteousness is nothing but self-righteousness. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth and the fullness thereof is all the Lord's. It's all His. And when we realize that, that what we have, what we possess is not our own, it's all God's. Everything we see is all His. Uh, it's freeing. There's liberty inside of that spot. Paul continues in verse 8. He says, But food does not command, does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the better. But verse 9, Beware lest someone somehow... This liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And so the recommendation from Paul is, as a mature believer, you need to be on the lookout for less mature believers. For those that aren't as far along in their journey, you need to be aware of others and how they are coming along. Now, spiritual maturity can look, uh, or immaturity, I should say, might look like a few of the things I've listed here for you this morning. First of all, there can be those that are spiritually immature that are babes in Christ. Those that are just now new to this faith in Jesus. They're new not only to Him, but also to His grace. Not understanding it was God's riches at Christ's expense that He gave it all for you and I. And instead, we try to infuse our culture into this thing which says, surely there's something I can do. I mean, we've got this pull ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of a way about us that even inside of my faith, even in getting, uh, making my way to heaven, there's something I must contribute to this relationship. Surely there's a place that I need to step in here. But grace says the work is finished. Grace says it's completed. And as we abide in that, here's the beautiful thing. Rest follows. That was the problem with idolatry. It was no rest. When you think about having to prop up the little G-God and take care of the little G-God and carry it everywhere, there's no rest in that. There's always a work to be done. There's always something that he requires from me. But in this relationship, he says it is finished. And then we can enjoy the rest. This is why as the disciples were gathered terrified after Jesus had risen from the dead and they didn't know what to do, He could walk into the room without opening the door and say, Peace. You need to be at peace because I've finished this thing. It is completed. And so for spiritual babes, this is the danger zone. They don't fully understand the grace of Jesus, that He's already completed all the work. Now, the next group that could be spiritually immature, what I would term as uh, spiritual brats. Now for any of you that have raised children, you know what it's like to be at the dinner table when they absolutely refuse to eat what is placed in front of them. Right? Like they push it back at every turn. It's too green, too hot, too cold, too mushy, too solid. Whatever the excuse is, they will not eat. And what I'm saying is there are people spiritually, that's exactly how they operate. Whatever thing you give to them, they will not participate in. There's no participation in worship or reading of your word or prayer. It's a refusal to accept the diet that is there before you. This is who Paul addresses, excuse me, not Paul, the author of the book of Hebrews, who we're not sure who it is. Might have been Paul. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come need. You have come to need milk and not solid food. And so there are those among us that should be further along, that should be consuming this diet, but you need to go back and continue to just drink milk because you can't handle solid food. Now, as my kids have gotten bigger, I've noticed something interesting. That back when they were little, I could sit and look out over my kingdom. And I could know that there were leftovers up there. There was seconds and thirds awaiting on my arrival. And I could go and partake any time I wished from the spoils that I had brought home. But as the three boys have gotten bigger, all of a sudden, um, Dad, who still rules over his kingdom, proceeds up to the island to find seconds and thirds are gone. What happened to all the food? What happens is... They're growing, right? They are maturing. They are are growing up as young men. And so they've come need of more. And the same is true for us. That as we grow, we should be always looking, digging in, feasting on His Word, looking for more. And none of us would expect to grow and mature if we didn't actually consume food daily. The same is true with the Word of God. It's necessary for us to consume the Word, to be able to grow and not stay in a spot of being spiritual brats. Now, the third group are what I would say are are scared children. Too afraid to get off the front porch. I mean, they, they look out and see the world, but the world is terrifying. There are bees and bugs and mosquitoes and cars coming all around. And, and it's terrifying to go out there. And, and this is a spot spiritually where they find themselves stuck. I might get hurt. I might get rejected. I mean, what if all these things might happen? And so what takes place is they begin to develop what I call uh, meatloaf faith. That's where they say, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, no, I won't do that. Right? So we would say, Lord, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. You saved me. I'll do anything. But well, not that. That's crazy. I'll be rejected for sure. I'll be ter- I might get hurt. I might get a bee sting. I might swell up. Right? I can't possibly go there and do that. And so the, the terrifying thing is we will not get ourselves off the porch. We're not in the game. And so we're completely incapacitated by the enemy due to our own fear. And so these are spots of spiritual immaturity that we have to watch out for. Now continuing in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. So these restaurants would actually be connected to the temple. So you could go to the idol temple you could eat the cheap All the meat prepared right there for you. So Paul says, "...if anyone sees you in this spot, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died." And so the danger zone is for people that see you eating in this spot, they don't have the same maturity, the same constitution you do, and they could be tempted to fall back into idolatry. And so what Paul is saying is as you're there getting ready to eat your uh, idol cheeseburger, getting ready to take a big bite, you need to be aware of those around you. You need to be very aware that there might be a less mature believer who's not in the same spot you're in. And in fact, that, that idol that you're now sitting there and eating a cheeseburger in front of, while it doesn't stumble you, it might very well stumble them. They might fall right back into that place of idolatry that for generations their family had been trapped and so they could be put back into that spot and so be aware of your brother or your sister in Christ. And it might look, it just might look like we have to forego some liberty in order to help someone else on their journey. Now Paul continues in verse 12. He says, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And so not only could we potentially stumble a weaker brother or sister, but we could actually wound them through exercising our liberties. Now, for some, you might have this question, uh, am I really responsible for other people? I mean, am I really responsible for another brother or sister in Christ? Can't they just take care of themselves? But well, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 9, Cain and Abel have a religious disagreement, and Cain proceeds to kill his brother Abel. And in verse 9 of Genesis 4, the Lord comes to Cain and says, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's how he responds to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be responsible for him and his whereabouts to keep an eye out for my brother? And the answer is, yes. You are responsible. Yes, you who are more mature are supposed to be responsible for a Weaker brother or a weaker sister. Now, it's important to note that this is for those who are really trying. That there are people in our midst that are trying to do better, that are trying to follow along. This doesn't mean that every indignant old grouch that we might be in church with or might be in our family or in our world, our sphere, we have to satisfy They're going to be those that are just like the two old men from the Muppet Show, right? They're going to sit up there in the balcony. They're not really there right now. But they're going to sit up there in the balcony, and they're going to be grumpy about everything. Like there's nothing we could do to satisfy them. They're going to be, look at him there, teaching out of the Bible in a flannel shirt. How dare he? It's not even tucked in. (laughs) Now, if I would have sat up here, in front of you in a three-piece suit, they would do the same thing. Look at him there, so smug in his three-piece suit on his swivel stool. He should be wearing flannel, untucked. That's the way the cool preachers do it. (laughs) Like, there are some that you're not going to satisfy no matter what you do. But there are those who are less mature, brothers and sisters, that are in your circle that you have the opportunity to encourage. Or... Conversely, you have the opportunity to actually stumble them or perhaps even wound them with our behavior and our activity. Now Jesus, uh, he meant no words about this in Matthew chapter 18. Concerning those who are weaker than us, he says in Matthew 18, verse 6, "...whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's the seriousness of what Jesus is communicating about how my maturity can affect someone else, how my expressing of my liberties could potentially affect someone else. He's being very graphic intentionally and going so far as to say it's actually a sin against Christ to stumble a weaker brother or a sister in the faith. Now, All that brings us to the 13th verse as we wrap up. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so what Paul says is, I am willing to be a vegan if it actually encourages a weaker brother or sister in the faith. I'm willing to forego the liberties that I have in Christ to be able to partake so that someone else is not potentially stumbled. And so the question for us to consider is, where do we stack up in terms of maturity? Am I willing to give up liberties that I have so that I can come alongside someone else? It's a question that we all need to process as we get ready to take communion here in a little bit. What things do I intake, and then what things do I output that could actually be stumbling for others? And now, Uh, Since we've already talked about uh, sexual immorality and marriage and divorce and slavery and sleeping with your stepmom, I thought, why be comfortable one more week, right? Why not just make ourselves uncomfortable uh, again for the fourth week in a row? And I wanted to bring up a cultural topic, and that is the consumption of alcohol. And as I bring this up, I already know that some are going to be upset. And for any of you that are upset by anything that I say, I want to encourage you, you can email any questions you have to Jake and Michaela at woodlawnchapel.org. Uh, They'd be happy to answer anything that I say that it, that is potentially offensive. But what I wanted to share with you is regarding the consumption of alcohol, the spot that I stand in as a pastor. And I first want to preface it with this, to say that you are, you have the liberty in Christ to partake, to have a drink, to have a glass of wine, to have a beer. Now growing up in a very, uh, I would say, legalistic denomination, we looked at it like uh, any consumption of alcohol led you straight to hell. And the reality is, uh, it's not actually in the book. That Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. He didn't turn it into Diet Dr. Pepper. So no matter how much we want to gloss over that, that's not what actually happened. So you have liberty in Christ, to partake. Now, drunkenness, Scripture is very clear about. Uh, Being inebriated or or losing control of yourself, Scripture is very clear about. But the spot that I come from is this. Uh, I choose to abstain. And and here's the reasons why. I'm going to share it just for me personally. This is not to layer it on you. It's simply to give it to you as a consideration. Here's the buckets that I put it in and the reasons why I abstain. Uh, First of all, as a pastor, I believe that I'm called to higher expectation. That there is a higher expectation of me than of other people, even leaders inside the church. Now, you might want to disagree with that, but James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, for you will receive a stricter judgment. So it seems like Scripture's pretty clear that if I'm going to receive a stricter judgment, that there's a bar that is set for me that is rather high. And so... As I consider that, my desire, the desire of my heart, is to reflect him the absolute best I can. And I get it wrong a lot. But the truth is, if I let myself get a little bit out of hand or a little bit sideways, I don't know that I'm reflecting my king very well. And frankly, he's worth more than that. He's worth so much more. And so I have seen, I have friends who are pastors that do partake, and I've seen situations unfold where uh, the lips get loosened a little bit. It's something that's said in private, gets shared in public, and it can cost a person their ministry. It can cost relationships. It can hurt people. And it's just not worth it for me to go down that road as a pastor. And so it's an honor to get to uh, forego that liberty that I have in Christ in the spot that I'm in. The second bucket that I would put it in is as a father. As a father I know that I'm setting an example for my children. I know that they're always watching me. They're looking in on the way I behave and how I handle different situations. And what I also know is while I've had my own struggles with alcohol, I couldn't in my previous life have a beer. I had to have 12. And so I know that I have an addictive personality and addictive tendencies. I know that I'm also likely to have passed that on to at least some of my children. And so if I've passed that on to them, for me to then, uh, now that I'm a new creation in Christ, I'm free. Uh, that's been relieved from me. I'm no longer an addict. But the issue is, uh, what if they are? What if I stumble them and they're not able to recover or they don't, they don't receive the same amount of, of grace and forgiveness that I have and they go down that Life. I don't know that I want to live like that. And so, for me, I look at them and I say they are worth it. It's worth it for me to forego my liberty because I don't want to take a chance with them. Now, the third bucket I would place it in is as a brother. As a brother in Christ, I don't want to take a chance to stumble another brother or a sister. And so it's my honor to get to give up a liberty that I I most definitely have in Christ. It's an honor to get to, not partake. And so I I do that knowing that I am not going to stumble someone else. Now, all that I just shared with you as an example of one particular liberty that might have most likely made at least several of us uncomfortable. I want to share that to say there are lots of other liberties that get exercised that equally should make us uncomfortable. Like um, what I say or what I type on the book of Face. Like how many times have, has a brother or a sister stumbled whole groups of people by saying something completely ignorant on the book of Face? Like something that is so insensitive that, that a person that's considering maybe coming to know Christ is like, if that's how a Christian talks, if that's how they're going to view the world, if that's the way they're going to be, I'm never going to set foot in church. It's just as dangerous for us to let our words flow as it is to let the alcohol flow. It's dangerous. And so to be mindful, to be aware of self, what I intake, what doesn't stumble me that I listen to might stumble someone else. What doesn't stumble me and what I watch might stumble someone else. And so the the charge here is to be self-aware. And it looks a lot like we're setting liberties aside. It's not that. But here's the thing I want to share about liberty. When you get ready to celebrate here in a few weeks, Memorial Day, and we think about how many millions of young men and young women set aside their liberty so that you and I could actually be free. It grips us, right? When we consider what they gave up, what they never got to experience, that now I have liberty to to share with you in a flannel, untucked shirt, on a swivel stool, Uh, it's moving. But I take it a step further. We are called to be Christians. That means Christ-like, or little Christ. And here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, verse five. He says, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the same in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men." And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus for, forgo, forwent. He gave up his liberty, as God. I mean, he was God, and he poured himself into flesh so that you and I can have liberty, so that you and I can have life, and so if my example is willing to do that, then I would suggest to you there is no amount of liberty that we should hang on to so tightly that we aren't willing to give up for one who is weaker than us. And so the question that I want to ask again as you guys get ready to take communion, as you prepare your hearts and your minds, is, is just simply this. What, what things do I intake and what things do I output that could have an effect on others, even if, to me, there's no effect? And so be encouraged to consider that. Father God, I thank you and I praise you for 1 Corinthians 8. Lord, um, what seemed like scripture that probably wasn't that applicable when we first opened it, uh, turns out it has a lot of application. Father, it's difficult. You know. It's hard to let go of, of liberties or to feel like we're restricted in some way. Lord, I pray for us that it wouldn't be a have-to, but we'd view it as a get-to, as an honor to get this step aside or put it down or walk away from a conversation, Lord, because it's the most honoring thing to you that we can do. And it won't stumble a brother or a sister. So, Father, I pray for that, for this group. I thank you for a straight talk that we can have as a body of believers. Lord, help us As we go on our way, help prepare our hearts as we get ready to take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.